0: Great managers help their team achieve their dreams, not just achieve great results at work. Today, I'm going to talk about specific tools and techniques you can use as a manager to create radically candid teams. So, this episode is by popular demand after our last episode on radical candor. So, I would definitely recommend starting there to understand the framework of radical candor and what we really mean by caring personally, and challenging directly. In that episode, I really focused on the aspects of Radical Candor that are broadly applicable to leaders of any sort, including individual contributors and people like engineers, designers, product managers, etc., who may not have direct reports. Today, we're really going to dig into management-specific techniques and strategies from Radical Candor. So, most leaders in startups have never received any formal training on management. And from my experience, many managers have never studied the management literature at all. I'm not talking about going and getting an MBA, but I'm talking about reading a handful of books, maybe checking out some of the Harvard Business Review articles on management and management best practices. A lot of people for this job in particular seem to succeed as an individual contributor, decide to become a manager for one of a variety of reasons, and then just do it. But it's not a natural job. It's not a natural relationship. And you do have to put some effort in to become a great manager. So today we're going to talk about those specific tips and techniques that you can use. So I opened this up by talking about achieving dreams, and I want to start by going to a quote from Thoreau, from Walden. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams, and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. So, how do you help your team build castles in the air and then put foundations under them? How do you help your team build towards some long-term dreams that they have so that the work that they do for your team and for your company is moving them along a path to their ultimate goals in life. That alignment between your team members life goals and their role at their job is really what's going to create a motivated, happy, effective employee. And if you can achieve that for all of the people in your team, then you can get a really incredible environment where everyone is working hard to build something great together That also is getting them further along in their goals in life. So I'm going to start by talking about establishing trust, building relationships with your direct reports. I'm going to touch briefly on giving guidance because we really dug into that in the last episode. And then we're getting into the real nuts and bolts. So we're going to go through a detailed conversation uh, framework for career conversations and how to guide your team's career progression. We're going to talk about one-on-ones, how to have effective one-on-ones, why they matter. And finally, we're going to go through techniques for information dissemination. So how do you make sure your team and the broader team is aware of what's going on because when you're in a large organization running a large team it's really a coordination problem more than anything else that's one of the biggest aspects of your job is making sure that all the various contributors under you or all the various sub teams under you are moving forward in a direction that makes sense broadly and strategically so Establishing trust and building relationships with your direct reports is the key to creating a radically candid environment. Obviously, in order to have open feedback and conversations, in order to go back and forth and really have that candid environment, people have to feel safe. They have to feel respected. They have to feel trust with you. So what are some things you can do to build that trust? Well, first and foremost, you need to stay centered. So what does that mean? It really just means you need to do what works for you in order to take care of yourself. So that could be exercise, meditate, spend time with family, um, call your mom, go for a hike, whatever it is that you need in your life to make sure that you're feeling good and ready to work through your day. That's what you need to spend time doing. And for me, this is really exercising, meditating, um, going outside, spending time with my family and friends. And personally, I don't always do a great job of prioritizing this stuff. But luckily for me, I do have a tendency to index more heavily on it when the going gets tough. And that's something that Larson talks about in the book is, especially when things are crazy at work, especially when things are intense, you must carve out the time to do the things that you need to do to stay centered so that you can be your best at work. And I love this quote from her. The essence of leadership is not getting overwhelmed by circumstances. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this, but I think one really useful technique that she mentions here is schedule time for yourself on your calendar and stick to that. So for example, if it's important for you to get home and have dinner with your family at night and you have to leave by 5 p.m. to make your hour commute, you should block off 5 to 6 30 p.m. in your calendar, and you should stick to that. Don't blow off the time that you schedule for yourself. You need to treat those meetings as important as any other meeting you have in your day. So, another thing you can do to build trust is you need to make people feel free at work, as she calls it. People need to feel this sense of openness and and freedom to really take ownership of their work and achieve the results that you want them to achieve. So to quote from the book here, the basic premise here is that when everyone on your team is able to bring the best of what they've got mentally, emotionally, and physically to their work, they are more fulfilled in their jobs, they work better with one another, and the team gets better results. You can't get that out of people with power, authority, or control. End quote. So the key here is you have to relinquish unilateral authority. You can't do things by just forcing things through because you see them a certain way and expect to build the kind of team that you want to build. This is something that is very hard for a lot of people, especially if you're a new manager, because all of a sudden you have this newfound authority and it's natural to want to take advantage of that authority and say, hey, this is how we're going to do things. Now, I want to be clear here. We're not talking about abdication or anarchy or absentee management. This doesn't mean you let your direct reports do whatever the hell they want to and you never check in on them. What this means is you want to empower people to make decisions. You want to serve as a coach and as a mentor and as a guide for them to make decisions, bounce ideas off of you, and etc, etc. But you really want to put decision making power in people's hands so that they feel engaged and they feel like you're not breathing down their neck. Um, and, and again, here, you have to keep in mind that you're still going to have to break ties, make tough decisions, often unpopular decisions that's really why making people feel free at work and building relationships based on trust is so important is because you have that cachet to rely on when you do have to make those tough decisions. Another really important factor of building trust is respecting people's boundaries. So this is pretty simple, but it can also feel a bit like it's in contradiction to the idea of radical candor. Because the whole thing is you want to care personally, you want to connect with people's whole selves and not just a tiny slice of their person that they consider their professional appearance. But at the same time, you really don't want to expect too much initially. And you don't want to push people if they're uncomfortable in terms of their personal life and and talking about and opening up about those things. So again, you don't want to expect too much initially. Most people, if you come in with this radical candor framework, they will have never had a boss who wants to engage with them on a personal level like this before. So expect this to build over time and don't expect overnight that people are going to open up in the way that you're hoping. So when people don't open up, you know, what can you do? Well, one great thing you can do is demonstrate openness. That can happen in a variety of ways. So one is bringing in your own personal experiences when you're asking people about their life experiences, so they can have that understanding of you and relate to you in the same way you're trying to relate to them. Um, Another one is in terms of demonstrating openness, is it's just really important that to understand that you can care personally about someone who disagrees with your views on any specific issue. And I'm going to quote from the book here. It's possible to care personally about a person who disagrees with your views on abortion or guns or God. The fastest path to artificial relationships at work, and to the gravitational pull of organizational mediocrity, is to insist that everyone have the same worldview before building relationships with them. A radically candid relationship starts with the basic respect and common decency that every human being owes each other, regardless of worldview. Once again... The work is the bond everybody on a team does share. And the most productive way to strengthen that bond is by learning how to work together in ways that benefit everyone involved. So I think an important piece of that quote is, the work is the bond that everybody on a team does share. Don't try to build your teams around some common worldview or some common political alignment, set of hobbies, etc, right? You're trying to build your team to execute on a specific subset of work, right? So you might be a back-end platform engineering team or you might be a consumer-facing product management team, and you need certain skill sets, you might need a certain culture based on your personal style and the culture of the broader company. All of those things are worth considering. But People's personal political views and worldviews don't have to be a part of that. And you need to be sure that you can engage with people regardless of that. As a leader and as a manager, it's very important that you demonstrate that openness regularly. The other big part of respecting boundaries is you have to master how you handle other people's emotions. Now, the key there is I'm not saying you have to master other people's emotions. You have to master how you handle them and how you respond to them. So don't ever try to control someone's emotions. Do not try to prevent, control, or manage other people's emotions. Don't ever say, oh, don't be mad. This isn't a big deal. Please don't get angry, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as you start trying to control people's emotions, you put them on the defensive, they shut down, and you're not going to be able to have a candid conversation with them. Instead, acknowledge their emotions. You know, I can see you're mad or I can see you're elated, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then continue on your discussion or ask them why, ask them to explain, right? Really try to understand why they feel that way. I can see from your body language that you're very angry. Can you tell me why? How can we do better to avoid this in the future? The first step to being able to address their concerns is to really understand them. So ask those questions. The The other one that I think is important here is adding your guilt to other people's emotions doesn't make them feel better. So when someone has a negative emotional reaction, you need to really avoid open displays of guilt or or shame because that's only gonna make things worse and you're putting more pressure on this person, right? So if someone's crying or yelling, it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong necessarily. It means that the person is upset. If you feel guilty that they're upset, you're probably a lot more likely to have a defensive reaction than a compassionate one. So in order to maintain that compassion with your people, in order to maintain that environment of caring personally, you need to make sure you don't take on guilt when you're having a difficult conversation and someone gets upset. They will get upset. And it's your job to accept that, understand why. And to help them deal with it. It's not your job to stop them from feeling upset. Okay, so those are some concrete strategies you can use to build trust with people on your teams. As I talked about at length in the last episode, the big next thing is giving guidance, right? So as we talked about in that episode, managers guide teams to achieve results. And if you buy that, then giving guidance is your job as a manager. If you want to dig into this in detail, go check out the episode, the previous episode on Radical Candor. But the short version is you need to be honest. You need to be open. You need to care about the people that you work with. Um, Make sure you give them feedback early and often And solicit feedback on your own work. So you build an environment of two-way communication and candor back and forth, right? It's not about you constantly telling people what's on your mind. It's about open relationships and communication. One specific aspect of giving guidance that I thought was really interesting here is skip-level meetings that she talked about. So some of you may have had skip-level meetings Before And essentially, the idea here is if someone is a manager of managers, they will meet with their direct reports teams in order to solicit feedback on the managers. And it's a really useful and important things in order to foster a culture of guidance. So these skip level meetings only need to happen once a year. But why are they important? Let's go to the book. Roxanne Wales, who first worked at NASA and then in learning and development at Google, once told me that one of the most important things any manager of managers could do to foster a culture of guidance was to have so-called skip-level meetings. End quote. Skipping forward a bit. Quote, The flat organization is a myth. Hierarchy is an inescapable fact of life. The best way to lower the barriers that hierarchy puts between us is to admit that it exists and think of ways to make sure everyone feels they're on an equal footing at a human level despite the structure, to make sure everyone feels free to speak truth to power, end quote. So you foster a culture of guidance by demonstrating that you're seeking guidance as a leader And also by creating a space for people to speak truth to power. So a few quick tips on these skip level meetings if you're a manager of managers. First of all, make sure you tell your direct reports before scheduling skip levels with their teams. You need to explain the whole thing to to these managers beforehand. And ideally, they should be the ones telling their teams about the skip level meeting, not you. Um, You need to make sure you do it for all of your reports and not just a subset of them. This is not a punishment. This is a normal course of business operations. This is how you run your teams, and therefore this has to apply equally to everyone. So, okay, you've communicated to your manager why we're doing the skip level meetings. They've talked to their direct reports. They scheduled it. Now you get in the meeting. What do you do? First thing you have to do is make sure everyone in the meeting knows that important points will be shared with your boss, but not who said it. There's no attribution on anything from this meeting. Second thing you want to do is take notes and project the notes so people can see as you're taking the notes and speak up if you misunderstand. This is really important because it's really easy to misunderstand people and people don't always speak up about this, but if they know that You're going to deliver these notes to their boss afterwards, and they can see the notes. If you misinterpret something, there's a lot more of an impetus for them to clarify. So that's the goal of projecting those notes. So you go through, you ask people for feedback, good and bad. What are the issues? What's not working? Once you have the issues in your notes, go through a prioritization exercise with the team force them to rank the issues in terms of what's important and what's not, because you're never going to be able to fix all the issues. But if you can understand what are the most pressing issues from their perspective, you can guide your direct report to then prioritize their feedback. So you go through, you have the open discussion, you take the notes. And then eight minutes before the end of that meeting, you tell everyone that you're going to be sending the notes out immediately after. Um, so you invite them to review the notes and if they see any issues to let you know now, and then you actually do that. You clean up the notes, you send them out to your managers right away. And what this can do is again, it creates a culture of guidance because it's showing the team that the managers are open to feedback. The senior managers are coming in and soliciting the the feedback directly there's no punishment for feedback, good or bad, and we're really focusing on getting to the core of the problems. We're not just saying, hey, what are your issues? Okay, put them, in a, put them in a box and then maybe we'll deal with them. We're saying we're having a dialogue about the issues and we're presenting them to the managers. We're creating plans to resolve the issues and we're checking back in on those plans. So that's really important. Okay, so now let's go and talk about career conversations. Career conversations are how you motivate your team. They're how you retain people and ultimately help your people achieve their dreams. So I've had some great managers in the past and universally all of them have really cared about getting me to where I want to go in my career and have a lot of respect and appreciation for their efforts on that. But despite that, despite the fact that I genuinely feel like I've had fantastic managers who cared a lot about my career development, I've never heard of a manager who approaches career conversations with this level of rigor or from this angle. So this framework was really built up over time by um, by Larson and also by her... Now, co worker, um, co founder, sorry, Russ Laraway, who was also a high level manager at Google at the same time that Amy was. Amy being the author of Radical Candor. So, one thing th- that struck Russ Laraway while he was working at Google is Sheryl Sandberg said to, to the team of, of managers. You need a long-term vision and an 18-month plan. So you need to know, you need to have an idea for where you're going in the long-term, and you need to have concrete steps of what you're doing to get there in the short-term. So ultimately, the goal of this whole career conversations exercise is to help everyone who works for you articulate their long-term vision and their 18-month plan. So how do you do this well this is structured as three 45 meetings with each of your direct reports over the course of three to six weeks where each meeting kind of builds on the other conversation one is called the life story conversation and your goal in this meeting is to understand your direct reports better and specifically You want to learn what motivates each person and what their values are. So Russ recommends starting this conversation with the following question. Starting with kindergarten, tell me about your life. Which again, I've never heard of someone asking a question like that as they're opening a new management relationship with a direct report. And I think it would be, really interesting to experience that both as a direct report and as a manager it's a level of personal connection that you don't often see in the workplace so you ask this question about asking them to tell you about their life and presumably they start telling you about how things went and and what happened so what do you want to focus on as they're talking? And this is really, you're listening in this conversation and in all of these conversations, your role is an active listener. So you want to be moving them along, right? Asking follow on questions, etc. but they should really be dominating and leading the conversation. So as they are talking through their life, you need to focus on the key changes they've made in their life. And the reason for this is values often get revealed in moments of change. So as a couple of examples of this, you, you could ask a question like, you dropped out of graduate school after two years to work on Wall Street. Please tell me more about that decision. And you could get an answer like, I couldn't even afford orange juice on my stipend and I just wanted to make more money. Or I was bored with all that theory and I was bored with not having a practical, tangible application of the ideas I was working on. And that allows you to start putting together the pieces of the puzzle of how this person is wired and and what they think about. So in that first case, financial independence may be a key motivator. In the second, it's really about seeing tangible results of your work. Your goal as you go through this is, again, to focus on those key moments of change and figure out what are the values, what are the motivators. You're not trying to find definitive answer, but you're trying to get a better feel for what these people care about this conversation can feel awkward again it's very unusual in the workplace to have a conversation like this but that should be okay as long as you've done the work to build the environment of trust and respect and as long as you don't push if people are uncomfortable one example from the book was that there was a particular employee who russ was doing this with who really didn't want to talk about their childhood And so he didn't press too much on it and he moved on to the next thing. And later he found out it was because they were in foster care and they had gone through a lot of trauma and they just weren't comfortable having those discussions with him at that time. So this goes back to respecting boundaries, right? So we have to respect each other's boundaries. We have to be okay with taking, you know, sort of no for an answer on any particular explanation or aspect of someone's life. So that's the first conversation. You have that in the book. You take your notes from it about what their values and motivators are. And in that conversation, you also clarify them. So as you are talking and you say, okay, financial independence seems like a key motivator. actually say that. Financial independence seems like a key motivator for you. They may correct you or they may agree and say, yeah, that is very important to me. Um, And it's important to sanity check that understanding that you're drawing they have to be a part of this as well um it's it's not like a external test of their values it's you just trying to understand their values through stories rather than just asking them their values because it's easy to misunderstand abstractions it's a lot easier to understand when you have the context behind someone's choices so the second conversation is all about dreams. What do people want to achieve at the apex of their career? How do they imagine life at its best to feel? So the use of the word dreams here is very important and very intentional. The reason we're talking about dreams and not long-term goals or career aspirations or five-year plans is is because all of those phrases elicit a specific type of answer, a professional and not entirely human answer, and it invites a response that the person thinks that you want to hear, rather than a description of what the person really wants to achieve. They're trying to balance trying to appear sufficiently ambitious and not too ambitious So basically, long story short, you're really trying to humanize a conversation by asking about their dreams. And the way they recommend starting this conversation is with the question, what do you want the pinnacle of your career to look like? You should also encourage people to come up with three to five different dreams for the future because this allows employees to include the dream they think you want to hear as well as those that are actually closer to their hearts. And I want to go to a story that they tell in the book about one of the first times that he implements this and what that means. So Russ had a employee who will call Todd – and he asked Todd to describe his long-term vision for his career. And he said what he thought Russ wanted to hear. Essentially that he wanted to be just like Russ. And Russ said, that's not ambitious enough. I'm not even sure I want this job. You want more. You deserve more. It didn't work. Todd was like, no, no, I really want to be like you. You're so great, etc." So he tried something else. He said, okay, that's one vision. But nobody else really knows what but nobody really knows what they want to do when they grow up. Give me another vision. And this time he talked about how he wants to be more like Jack Welch than uh, Russ Laraway. So he wants to be a CEO. He wants to build a company. He wants to do something crazy. And the same thing happened when Russ was talking to Sarah, another person. And first she said, "Oh, I want to be like you, Russ. I want to be a manager. I want to do this, I want to do that." And then Russ says, what about another vision? A CAD, a crazy-ass dream. Now, Sarah said what she really wanted to do was to start a spirulina farm. So that's pretty shocking, right, as a manager at a tech company, that your direct report's dream is to become a farmer of uh, a bacteria rich in protein and iron that's a superfood and so the the point is you're really trying to get at those like deeper closer close more closely held visions f- that people have for their future you want to think about you you want to solicit the crazy ambitious ideas that they think about and generally keep to themselves it's really not about, oh, you know, I want to follow the career progression chart at the company and go from L3 to L4 to L5 to L7. What you want to do is find out their their crazy dreams. And that is really the point of this conversation. So say you solicited these three to five dreams. Now what, what what they ask you to do is ask each direct report to create a document a document where you have a column per dream that they described in the conversation. So you have three to five columns. Each of these are one dream or the other for their career. And then you list the skills that you need as rows on this page. So basically you end up with a sort of matrix where your columns are different dreams that you want to achieve in your life. And the rows are the skills that you would need to achieve each of those dreams. And then you fill in each cell of the matrix with how important that skill is to each dream and what your level of competency is in that skill. And once you go through this exercise, it'll typically become very obvious what skills you need to acquire in order to achieve your dreams. Now, you as a boss can help them think about how they can acquire those skills. So you can tailor their work and their role to move them along in the path to their dreams. I want to take a second to think about how motivating that is, right? So say you want to, you have this dream of becoming a spirulina farmer someday, and you've kind of made it in the back of your mind, you said, Hey, I need to make money. I need to do this. And you're working, whatever. That's, that's the default way of, of working. But now say you have a manager who comes in and says, okay, what are your crazy ass dreams? Okay. You want to be a spirulina farmer. What do you have to do to do that? Right? So one of the things that she needed to do was get management experience. Previously, she was trying to develop her analytical skills and her presentation skills because she wanted to be a director at Google, but she doesn't really want to be a director at Google. What she wants is to be a spirulina rancher, and to do that, management skills are way more important. So now they came up with a plan to increase her management responsibility instead of just getting her... Um, lessons, or instead of just getting her doing more presentations as she would have if she was working up the career ladder. And again, now you have this motivator, right? You're saying, okay, why am I doing this job, right? When the work gets tough, when you're frustrated, you think, why am I doing this? Well, for Sarah, she's doing this because she's getting management experience that's going to help her become a spirulina rancher someday. So whatever your dreams are, if you have a manager that's helping you work towards them in a structured way and tailoring your role to that, I mean, how great is that? How excited are you going to be about putting your all into work when you know your work is moving you to what you ultimately want to achieve in life and not just, you know, moving along a career ladder, not just doing what it is that the company or your boss needs you to do. It's going beyond that. So the last part of this second conversation that you need to do is make sure the person's dreams are aligned with the values that they've expressed. So if in the first conversation, one of the values you pulled out was hard work, and now they're saying their dream is to retire early, you want to dig into that. Um, you want to say, you know, wh- if hard work is a core value, why is one of your dreams to retire early? Inquiring about the dreams people describe is a good way to push for radically candid, meaningful conversations. And it'll, again, help you build a deeper understanding of the person that you're talking to. And that is a critical part of caring personally. Okay, so... Now you've put yourself out there, your direct reporters put themselves out there, you have a theory on what it is that motivates them, what their values are, and what their dreams are, and what skills they need to achieve those dreams. Now you get to conversation three, which is building the 18 month plan. So how do you go about this? Your goal here is to create a plan that allows your direct report to tailor their role to help them learn the things they need to learn in order to achieve their dreams. So the first thing Russ recommends is ask yourself the following questions, quote, what do I need to learn in order to move in the direction of my dreams? How should I prioritize the things I need to learn? Whom can I learn it from? How can I change my role to learn it? End quote. So first you ask yourself that and understand it to practice as a manager, essentially having this conversation. And then you ask people to think about these things themselves. So ask all of your direct reports to go through those questions as well. And the point of this is that they should come out of this with agency and ownership of a clear prioritized list of things that they want to learn. And when your direct report comes to you as a manager with a list of things that they want to learn, it's really easy for you as a manager to identify opportunities at work that would help them develop those skills in the next six to 18 months. So what you want to do is make a list of how each person's role can change to help them learn the skills that needed to achieve each dream, whom they can learn them from, and any external resources they could use to learn them, classes they could take, books they could read. Then next to each item, you note who does what by when, and make sure you have some action items. So I will reach out to this person that I know to ask them if they'd be willing to coach you or mentor you to become a better manager. Or I will go talk to finance and get a learning budget approved for you so you can take the course that you want to in order to get to the next level in your career. And I wanna take one more quote from the book here. Quote, helping people clarify values and dreams and then aligning them as closely as possible with their current work will invariably make your team stronger. Each individual will be more successful and happier and together you'll achieve results unexpected in common hours. And there we go back to the Thoreau quote that I started with. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined... He will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. End quote. It's very scary to move confidently in the direction of your dreams. Part of your responsibility as a boss is to help people find that courage. And if you do that well, there are few jobs more rewarding than that. So that's the career conversations framework. I think you can take this and apply it directly at your job if you're a manager and see how it goes. I would love to hear from you. What crazy-ass dreams do your direct reports have that shocked you, that surprised you? And how are you tailoring their roles in unexpected ways to allow them to move towards those dreams? If you have any feedback to share on that, I'd love to hear about it. Drop me a line at contact at rdmr.io. Okay, so that's career conversations. That is something that you're gonna do once in a while, you know, when you first get a new report, it's a framework that you have to go through. And then maybe once a year after that, you should be creating an action plan with this 18 month plan and checking in on them and seeing how it's going. But this isn't something you do every day tactically, right? This is strategic in terms of someone's personal growth. So tactically, how do you How do you build a relationship with people? How do you make sure that things are going well? The answer is the humble one-on-one. Often overlooked, often canceled and underappreciated by managers throughout the world, the humble one-on-one is the single most important meeting you have as a manager. The one-on-one is... A space for you to really listen, to really understand what's working or not working in your teams. It's an opportunity to get to know your direct reports better and to understand them as people, to move up drastically on the care personally axis. And ultimately, it's how you build the team that you're looking for. So how do you have great one-on-ones as a manager? Well, the first thing is don't cancel them. Always show up for your one-on-ones. That's like the first step to anything. Do not cancel your one-on-ones. Unless there's an actual personal emergency or some gigantic fire that really cannot be avoided... You know, of course, things will come up that are beyond one's control, but this is an important meeting and you need to treat it like that. If you're canceling one-on-ones, that's a sign of trouble and you need to really start asking yourself as a manager, you know, what your role is and why it is that you are canceling these meetings. Um, the other thing that you can do with one-on-ones just broadly is... These other meetings that I've been talking about, career conversations, performance reviews, check-ins, you can schedule these during one-on-ones just to avoid meeting proliferation. So you end up losing a few of your one-on-ones to these conversations that have to happen on a regular cadence throughout the year. So you really don't get that many one-on-ones with each person. Um, what the author of the book recommends is... 150 minute one-on-one with each direct report per week. And she said she likes to keep herself to five direct reports for this reason. Now that's actually something that stunned me. I've never heard of a startup where it's possible for most managers, especially engineering managers, but most managers to have only five direct reports. At the company I'm working now, It has not been unusual because of turnover, because of the difficulty in hiring, because of rapid growth on teams. It is not unusual for a manager to have 20 direct reports or more. And of course, I think that's bad and that's an extreme of like, you know, we should try to get out of that situation because you could never provide this level of career development or care if you have that many direct reports. But I did want to call out that I don't know how realistic of a standard this is. I would love to hear from other people in startups if they actually have successfully managed to have enough managers in place to have that few direct reports. But I personally haven't seen it in in the valley. So the other thing you need to do here is make sure your direct report owns the agenda and set expectations for when and how it's delivered based on your preferences. So, for different managers, you're going to have different personal styles and that's okay. You just need to make sure you communicate that clearly. Some of you are going to want to have a agenda in your inbox the day before that you can read over and come into the one-on-one prepared to have a discussion at length about specific topics. Some of you are going to be fine with your direct report rolling in there with a few notes written on a napkin and trying to go through these issues with you. So any of that is fine. You just need to make sure that you set those expectations with them. Um, another aspect of one-on-ones is they're a great place and a great way to encourage and nurture new ideas. So this should be a place where you really allow people to ideate with you and to bounce things off of you as a leader, as a manager, they're looking to you for validation of their ideas and they're looking for a safe space in which they can talk through things. So you really want to encourage that um, in those meetings. Um, so there's a list of follow-up questions that they give in the book here that you can ask to show people you're listening, but also that you care and you want to help and to identify gaps. Um, I'm going to pick a couple of these, but if you want the full list, uh, get the book or send me an email and I can, I can send them to you. Um, what can I do or stop doing that would make this easier? What wakes you up at night? What are you working on that you don't want to work on? What are you not working on that you do want to work on? How do you feel about the priorities of the teams that you're dependent on? So those are just general questions that you can use to to follow up on things that your direct reports are saying. If we we're talking about questions specific to encouraging new ideas, we can here's a few of those. What do you need to develop that idea further so it's ready to discuss with the broader team? How can I help? I think you're on to something, but it's still not clear to me. Can you try explaining it again? I understand what you mean, but I don't think others will. How can you explain it so it will be easier for them to understand? So the last piece of this is you can get signs in your one-on-ones that you're failing as a boss and that's valuable feedback for you to keep an eye on. And these are early warning signs. So if you start to see this, it doesn't mean that all is lost, but you really want to start soliciting guidance and feedback from your mentors and from your team to figure out why this is happening and how you can improve. So cancellations, if your direct reports are canceling one-on-ones, it means they're not getting value out of them. This is supposed to be the most important meeting you have with them. So if they're not getting value out of them, something really bad is going on. So you need to try to understand that. If you show up to your one-on-ones and most of them are people just giving you tactical updates, that's another sure sign that things are going poorly. Encourage your people to use the time more constructively. Um, you know, one thing that can help with this is go in with the attitude of you're having lunch or coffee, not like this is a meeting that we're going to that is like a, you know, say a sprint planning meeting, or it's like a purchasing or hiring meeting. It's really more of a sort of casual, friendly vibe that you want to have in these conversations. So you can have those candid conversations. Um, If you only hear good news, it's a bad thing. It's a sign that people are not comfortable coming to you with problems. If they never criticize you, it means you're not doing a good job of soliciting guidance from your team. So go back to the phrase, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And if people show up with no agenda consistently, meaning they just have nothing to discuss. It could mean they're overwhelmed. It could mean they don't understand the purpose of the meeting or that they don't think it's useful. But you need to be direct about this. This is your time, but you don't seem to come with much to talk about. Can you tell me why? Come at it with an air of curiosity, with an air of understanding. But be firm in understanding in getting to that understanding. So the last piece that I really want to talk about today is how can you communicate information effectively to your team, and if you're a manager of managers, to the broader team, which is all of the teams under your reporting structure. Um, one way to do this is the staff meeting. You know, one quote from the book is literally every CEO, middle manager, and first time manager I've ever worked with has struggled to figure out how to run a productive staff meeting with their direct reports. All too often, the person leading the meeting comes to dread it. Attendees view it as a waste of time, and those excluded feel sad and bad and left out. Although bloated staff meetings can be a drain on people's time and energy, the opposite is also true. A well-run meeting can save you time by alerting you to problems, sharing updates efficiently, and getting you all on the same page about what the week's shared priorities are. An effective staff meeting has three goals. It reviews how things have gone the previous week, allows people to share important updates, and forces the team to clarify the most important decisions and debates for the coming week. That's it. It should not be the place to have debates or make decisions. Your job is to establish a consistent agenda, insist that people stick to it, and corral people who go on for too long or who go off on tangents. End quote. Okay, so again, we're talking about reviewing how things have gone, allowing people to share important updates and forcing the team to clarify decisions and debates. So three pieces of that, learn, listen, and clarify. So here's how the author recommends doing this. The first 20 minutes of the meeting, you review key metrics. So what went well that week and why? What went badly and why? You need to have a dashboard and KPIs that you're tracking in order to be able to do this. It doesn't have to be some sophisticated system set up by an IT department with uh, data lakes and ETLs and this and that. It can just be a spreadsheet with a few numbers, but ultimately, what are the important activities and results that you're seeing each week? And are you on track to achieving your goals? Spend 20 minutes reviewing that. So the next 15 minutes is about updates. It's it's about listening. So I really thought this is an interesting approach to this problem. I've had managers in the past that just ask everyone to go around and give updates. And when you're on a broader team of 20, 30 people, it's an excruciating meeting, extremely painful and unhelpful. Um you can also take the approach of doing things asynchronously where you ask people to write up what they've been doing in the past week and post them somewhere the problem with that is people have a lot of resistance to writing those updates and when some people don't do them the whole system falls apart so you're constantly following up with people to get them to actually write the updates and that's painful but if you get everyone to go through the updates synchronously in your staff meeting, that's also painful. So the approach that she came up with is you have a quote-unquote study hall during your staff meeting for 15 minutes. So you give everyone five to seven meeting minutes to write down the three to five things that they or their team did that week that others need to know about in some shared document, Google Doc, Confluence page, SharePoint, Whiteboard, whatever. So they write it down, give them five to seven minutes about it, and then give them five to seven minutes to read everybody else's updates. All of this happens synchronously in the meeting, but it's sort of quiet work time. Don't allow side conversations. Require that follow-up questions are handled after the meeting between people. And this is going to save huge amounts of wasted time in your meeting. Um... The last piece of these you know snippets that she calls them, which is uh, the updates. if you're a boss of bosses, these need to be made public to the broader team. So your Google Doc, your Confluence page, whatever it is, make sure you post that somewhere so that everyone can see them. If you may have things that can't go on there, like, you know, performance problems, salary adjustments, things like that if you need to do that, keep a confidential snippets doc as parallel to the regular snippets doc and allow people to put things there. But things should only be there if there's a legitimate reason that it cannot be in the public information. Um, basically, you know, if there are real HR reasons that you can't say this publicly, or it would be bad for team morale because of well, I'm actually going to retract that. I don't think it being bad for team morale is a legitimate reason to not put something in the updates doc because that is not being candid and open and honest with your people. But if it's something that you can't, then have the separate doc. And the last piece is clarifying. So identify key decisions and debates. And there's sort of a fork here. So if you have a smaller team, um, say less than 20 people or so, you can just go through and list the decisions and debates and then decide and debate on them ad hoc, either in that meeting or in a later meeting. If your team is bigger than that, you'll wanna be more formal about this. And she talks about these putting the topics on the agendas of separate big decision and big debate meetings. And identify owners for each. I thought this was another super interesting management tactic that she talks about in the book. So, again, the idea is you go through and you think about, okay, what are the, as a team, what are the big things we need to decide on or debate this week? And you decide who owns each of these things. It should be pretty natural. And then you get it on the agenda of the big debate meeting. So what is the big debate meeting? It's a standing meeting where the only purpose is to debate major issues and explicitly not to decide on them. You need to make it very clear that you aren't deciding on things. That reduces tension and it really allows people to be open and understand that this is an information gathering exercise, not a decision making exercise um so you should post this agenda publicly you should allow anyone in the broader team to attend if they'd like to but the agenda items have to be clear beforehand and people will generally self-select if people think it's interesting or relevant to them they'll attend and if you're a manager of managers it creates a sense of openness and sort of face time and access that people really like But even if you're not, it's just about that distinction between we're not deciding, we're just debating really helps focus on just talking through ideas and facts about the situation. So you have this meeting, um, you have a few topics to discuss, and you essentially just discuss them as a team, all the relevant people should self select into the room. And the sole product of this debate should be a summary of the facts and issues that emerged, um, a clear definition of any choices that have to be made going forward, and a recommendation either to keep debating or to move forward to a decision. That's it. Um, One thing that's really important in running effective big debate meetings is making sure there are no egos. Uh, One technique you can do, for example, is make participants switch roles halfway through so that people get the idea that we are really trying to get to the best solution, not earn brownie points for being the one that came up with a solution or something like that. So then you have the big decision meeting. Um, In the big decision meeting, you want to be really have the same norms as the big debate meeting in terms of agenda stakeholders who's invited the output being publicly visible all of that Um, but again here being explicit about when you're deciding and when you're debating helps you figure out when a decision really has to be made or when we're just doing information gathering exercises these big decision meetings should be based in the facts extracted from debate meetings They should be led by the owner of the decisions and the decisions must be final. So that's a really important part of this. If someone wants to have a say in a particular decision, they need to make sure they get themselves to the big decision meeting on the day it's being discussed. And if they don't, then the decision is final. We disagree and commit and we move on. Um... Last thing is, depending on the manager, you know, you may want veto power. If you want veto power, tell the decider to send the decision to you to approve before sending the notes out broadly. Again, here, the product of the meeting is a careful summary of the meeting distributed to the relevant parties. Um, another thing she talks about are all hands meetings. Um, if you're working at any sort of a tech company or a stand-up, you're probably very, very familiar with this type of meeting. I don't think it's as common outside of the tech industry, but basically the idea is you get the whole broader team together. So at my company, we have different kinds of all hands. We can have a whole company, all hands. We can have an engineering, all hands. We can have a product, all hands, which includes product and engineering. So Basically the idea is you're getting a broader team of people together and the goal is basically to persuade people that the company is making good decisions. Typically you have presentations to persuade people of that fact. Um it should be done by teams working on important initiatives. Have them present their initiatives to the broader team and then a big chunk of this meeting should really be just Q&A. So Leaders can hear dissent and address it directly. Well, that was a lot of tips and tricks on management, but I have one last one that I want to touch on here, which is especially important, again, if you're a manager of managers uh, in a large organization, if you have a large organization under you. Schedule an hour a week of walking around time. Just walk around, pick a random department in your office and go hang out there. Have little, quote unquote, water cooler conversations with people. Observe what's going on. This is one of the most useful things you can do for a variety of reasons. One, as a leader, when people see you, that boosts morale. When they see you engaging with them, asking questions, building relationships, again, that boosts morale. It also helps you understand what's really going on on the ground. If you're a manager of managers, you're typically getting a sort of carefully tailored view of the world through the perception and lenses of your direct reports. Oftentimes that can be drastically different from what people quote unquote on the ground are actually experiencing. So go out and find that information by just walking around. And there's a good quote she has about Dick Costolo doing this and how he did it. So I'm going to quote here. At one point, Dick was trying to consciously create a culture at Twitter in which people would fix small processes and annoyances rather than just complaining about them. One day during his walk around, he passed two people complaining about the dirty dishes piled up in a micro kitchen. Usually, he would have filed that away and just been annoyed by it. But this was his walk-around time, so he just took a moment to fix the problem himself. He stopped and looked around. Do you think that would be a better place for the dishes? He asked the two complainers, pointing to an equally convenient but less visible spot. They nodded yes, and to their amazement, he started moving the dirty dishes there himself. Needless to say, they stopped complaining and started helping, this story got told and retold, end quote. So there's a few great things here, but what I want to do is relate this back to what you do is who you are and the Ben Horowitz episode where we talked about that book. We talked at length about how displaying culture through action is one of the most effective ways to set your culture. And as shown by this story, walking around is an excellent opportunity to do that. So schedule that time and actually do it if you're a senior leader because you'll get valuable insights about your company and your organization that you would never get otherwise. Okay, so that was my view of the most important management tips from Radical Candor. And I'll tell you guys, it was not easy to... Cut this down to just an hour. Um, my notes on just the management focus aspects of this book are 11 pages um, after having, you know, five or six pages of notes last week about the leadership aspects of the book. So, really excellent book. There's tons of stuff I've left out despite this. I highly recommend you get it. It is one of my favorite books on management, leadership, business that I've read in recent memory. I really love the framework and I strongly recommend it to you, whether you're just coming at it from a leadership angle or whether you're coming at it from a management angle. I hope this was useful to you. If it was, let me know at contact at rdmr.io. You can also tweet at Ion at A-Y-0-N underscore B on Twitter. I'll get on there at some point. If you want me to get a Twitter, send me an email, contact at (laughs) rdmr.io. As always, thanks for listening. This has been Arik, and I'm going to get out of here and go watch some UFC. Have a great day.